Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, your host. With us today is military author, game designer, and the editor of Strategy Page, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us today is columnist, author, and a Strategy Page associate editor, retired Colonel Austin Bay. Welcome, Austin and Jim. I thought it'd be interesting to talk about if I suddenly became the uh, the Prime Minister of the Duchy of Fenwick, where would I go to buy my arms to uh, protect myself from uh, all those that surrounded me? Jim? Well, that, what, what that's, is, a, that's a very pertinent question. What it comes down to is there are two types of arms. There's the best stuff, and that's the Western stuff, the United States, Western Europe, Israel, and a few other countries like South Korea. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, – and those are the majority of arms sales. But uh, if you're not going to be confronted with an opponent who is equipped with that stuff or a lot of it, uh, you're better off with the Russian or Chinese stuff. It's cheaper. It's 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 uh, it, it stands up better to misuse because you probably haven't got the best trained troops. A lot of the times you might have conscripts. And also something not to forget is that the Russian and Chinese uh, uh, stuff is excellent if your primary enemy is your own people, and that's the case in a lot of countries. So they love you know the cheap Russian and Chinese stuff. It'll kill civilians you know as effectively as anything else. Uh, the other thing you have to consider is that the uh, Russians and Chinese are not concerned about bribery. You know, they're not hung up on all this ethics and you know, yada, yada, yada stuff the Westerners are always going riding on about. Uh, and uh, you know, so that makes it another you know, uh, draw. The only, the only problem is, unlike in the Cold War, when Russia was offering easy credit terms, which they took a multi-billion dollar bath on after the Soviet Union collapsed, um, uh, China and Russia expect cash up front or something very close to it. They do not give credit anymore. So they're doing quite well. Austin? Austin? Yeah, now let, let me, uh, let's explore your scenario a little bit, uh, Dan. Uh, you're the, you said the Grand Duchy of Fenwick. That's the mouse that roared. Exactly. Which is a, a hilarious a movie. For those of you who don't know it, go you know, check it out on the web. The, the Duchy of Grand Fenwick decides to lose a war to the United States so that they can pay off all their debt because they think the best thing you can ever do is lose to the United States because then you'll get a Marshall Plan. And of course, the way it works out in, in this comedic novel, and it was turned into a really, really funny movie. Uh, is Fenwick beats the United States, and it's been uh, uh, it, it gets it gets flipped, and it, it it's it, it's very funny. But I need to ask you something about your Fenwick, Dan. Are are you a responsible, democratic, and largely um, rule of law state, or are you a crooked autocracy? Can you, <laughs> okay, okay. Now, I need I, I, no, I need to know. Yeah. I need to know because I'm going to get back and play off a couple of things that Jim right. said or instructed. So which, I, I, th I think I'm the latter because, you know, I had to have a coup to get in place. Okay, all right, all right. You're, you're a crooked autocracy. All right, then you're in the situation where Jim says you're going to pressure on people. And there, here's, here's the other thing. Jim's, Jim was saying, all right, you mostly want to buy Chinese and Russian. 
and here you're thinking about light, mostly light infantry and uh, heavy, heavy infantry, uh, uh, heavy infantry weapons. But let me ask you a, uh, a next, a next question on that. That's 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 your first uh, purchases, and and I'll say, remember the Russian and Chinese types. They're also, even though they're 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 they're, they're not being manufactured at the same level that they uh, were. They're, they're, they're Ukrainian versions of some of the Russian weapons that, based on what uh, uh, I've read in the, in the defense press and military press and on uh, also some of the, uh, uh, ru- on the, on the rumor boards, is uh, more reliable than uh, some of the uh, Russian-made uh, weapons. But, uh, but they are they're made in Ukraine. During the Cold War, this is that the the Romanian version of the uh, Kalashnikov, the AK-47, which of course had some var- uh, variants, but uh, there was a Romanian AKM that uh, was uh, judged to be uh, a slightly better weapon. And my sources on that were uh, were numerous, including some uh, Green Beret friends of mine that had that said that this uh, it's it's better. We've uh, we've shot it. So there are. Yugoslavia, which of course no longer exists, was was making and manufacturing many of uh, quote unquote Soviet uh, type weapons, and some of them were judged to be better than what you could get from uh, uh, from Russia. Now now it's become Ukraine doing that. All right, but let me let's go back to to the scenario. Are you threatened by uh, regional uh, or and external enemies? And okay. Grand Fenwick, I know you're a corrupt autocracy, and we got you got us uh, oppress your own people. We've covered that, but do you have do you have enemies around you that uh, would attack you? I, I'm pretty paranoid, so yeah, I I, I think okay. they will. Okay, are they what kind? Uh, do they have uh, air forces? Yep. They do. Do you have a seacoast? No, no, I'm landlocked. Oh, you're landlocked. Okay, see, the Fed Grand Fenwick was supposedly. It was kind of like Wittgenstein or Luxembourg or even maybe a large, uh, very small Switzerland. But that was, uh, okay, you're, you're, you're landlocked. Good. You don't have to go around and acquire, and Jim's going to laugh about this, sea mines and things like that for air, for coast, uh, coast denial. But you're, you're going to need to have uh, some uh, aircraft, and you're going to need to have some uh, anti anti air uh, anti air systems. That's going to start getting expensive, Dan, because you're going to have to go and acquire. And I'm not going to. I know our audience is, uh, understands how these integrated systems, and they have to be they have to be integrated. Given even in even in your uh, backward autocratic uh, situation, you're going to have to have integrated sensors, radar, and, and the like with both uh, the missiles guns and aircraft so you're gonna have to spend some money but here's the good news you can buy uh, Chinese uh, Russian and in some cases there are plenty of good light strike aircraft that can also carry out limited anti-air interception uh, capability that are made in various places around the world Brazil India 
South Africa still makes some very interesting uh, systems. There right, and, of, and these are these are uh, a lot of these are prop planes, right, out of Brazil. Some like of them are jets. Some okay. of them are jets. There's a, a Czech-made uh, one in that uh, uh, light strike uh, trainer aircraft, and the name numbers escaping me. I bet it escaped Jim uh, on this. That's really got a very good reputation. But remember, Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, excuse me, is uh, is a, a member of NATO, and there'll be some, might be some, might be some. Uh, restrictions uh, on that. But there are also these cascaded systems, and that's the term that's used for it, where you would have uh, a, an older uh, French aircraft that has been uh, served in, uh, let's say, the Argentinian Air Force that comes out, can be remanufactured, and now you have, I know it's an old old airframe, but you, you have a Super Etendard that with uh, modern uh, air-to-air missiles can do a very fine job for you. Now, there are brokers, and these are legitimate brokers around the uh, uh, around the world that handle these systems, and they can put together packages of air defense, and, and, and including an aircraft for you. It's going to cost you a couple of hundred million dollars at a minimum. You may not get very many aircraft. Now, I'm talking about you paying for it. There are other things you can do, and let's use Uganda as an example. Uganda decided it needed six high-performance uh, air uh, uh, jets with air interceptor capability. Uh, there was some crooked stuff that went on with this. You told me you're crooked, and they made the deal with the Russians to provide uh, uh, buy uh, six high-performance uh, aircraft to defend their small uh, oil, and it's it's small, but they've got uh, they've got oil fields, and also unstated in this some ability to help defend South Sudan against potential air attacks uh, by uh, uh, by Sudan, and that was that was uh, unstated. Uh, somewhere, and I do get this out of reading the. Uh, uh, Ugandan uh, English language Ugandan press somewhere between 50 and 60 million dollars in this deal is unaccounted for and whether it went to Ugandans or Russians I don't know we're back to what Jim said about they don't care about uh, about corruption but you can go and there was also some uh, uh, apparently uh, political quid pro quo between the Ugandans who are largely pro-Western. I mean, they uh, serve with Amisom and in uh, Somalia. They are, uh, the government is virulently uh, anti-militant uh, Islamist. And uh, it's, uh, it's, we, you can follow in strategy page. We've helped train part of their army uh, and they've gotten very good, and including fighting the uh, Lord's Resistance Army. They've got this, some of their long-range patrol capability is now now quite good. Nevertheless, they made a deal with the Russians because they thought they and they. It's arguable that that this is something they needed, given that they uh, the their the, the uh, threat that they perceived uh, from uh, from uh, from Sudan. Nevertheless. It took money, and there was hanky-panky and political uh, quid pro quo. So, Dan, 
I'm assuming, do, do you have 400 million bucks? Well, I have. If, if you do, you're in business <laughs> and you're Fenwick, all right? And I've, I've talked about it in the open source stuff. They're covert, and I'm gonna, I'll let Jim talk about the covert thing. Thing is, some of this is very hard to hide because, uh, especially since you're landlocked, it means it's harder to get shipments to you without uh, if, if somebody w wants to inspect the cargoes. If you had a port, we could play what the uh, Houthis do and the Iranians, which is land stuff at night and pay off, uh, pay off smugglers to, to bring it to you. The, the uh, sea delivery is really, really uh, good for larger, larger covert shipments. Air shipments are also troublesome because they can be uh, you know, the overflight can, the rights can be denied by uh, nations that have police and, and intelligence agents, agencies watching weapon systems. Jim can talk about how, how that works. And they know you're a bad actor, Dan. Okay. We're aware that you're a crooked, corrupt little uh, autocrat. We don't want you. You apparently aren't helping terrorist groups. That's good. So that lowers your profile. But you could still be cut off since you don't have a port, a seaport. I'll leave it at that. So Jim, did I get thing wrong with a? No, no, you're right. I mean, that, that brings up another point that the defense budgets of all countries, both from major, you know, as in ancient Egypt to ancient China uh, to, to the present, has always been a source of, of uh, corruption because uh, what people don't realize uh, that that most of the time a military is not at war with anyone. They're getting ready. Uh, that's an important point. I mean, you watch the news and you watch movies and you think, oh my God, they're at war all the time. They're not. Uh, it's like people are surprised when they find out most police uh, go through their entire 20-year career never shooting their, 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 their weapon, uh, and many never even pulling it out of the holster, you know, in an emergency. Uh, well, it's very much the same way with military organizations. And, of course, you know, greedy politicians quickly picked up on that. And there are some epic stories from ancient China where they documented a lot of this, uh, you know, monkey business um, of, you know, massive, uh, you know, uh, thefts taking place and it not being discovered until the Mongols decided to pay a visit or whatever. Um and this still goes on today, but it's, as, as Austin points out, it's particularly uh, useful for, uh, you, know, uh, th you know, third world countries, so to speak, uh, where the only real possible opposition is the, uh, uh, you know, your own people. Uh, or, you know, it's equally ill-prepared um, uh, neighbors uh, who don't really have an offensive capability. That's something else that, 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 that's, uh, that, that I, I bring out in, a, in an upcoming article for Strategy Page, is that... One thing that makes Western weapons so expensive is military services. Now, what this is all about, and this is important to remember, is Western weapon systems are meant to be used a lot in peacetime. That means for training. That is very expensive. Uh, uh, Western military equipment is meant to be used 
to be most effective by highly trained operators. And that goes from tanks, you know, to aircraft, obviously, uh, ships and what have you. Uh, you the, the, the purchaser, they have to spend money to have their people trained. I mean, they, get, they can reach a certain point where they can train their own, and many of them do. But many, when they're they're stepping up their game, as it were, uh, in terms of uh, weapons quality, uh, there's a lot of money coming in. Now, a perfect example of that is the Gulf oil states. These countries, in like two generations, went from you know uh, dirt poor, you know Bedouin, you know, uh, you know, very poor, you know, country where the average uh, lifespan was uh, 40 or so years. Uh, to one where, you know, a lot of people go into college, everybody's literate, uh, and the lifespan is almost doubled. Well, that also means that there's a lot more to defend, but yet they have not built up, which often takes generations, uh, as we saw, like in Western countries, uh, of, of uh, uh, technically competent people, a technically competent and a respect for technical competence. You know, the Japanese got it very quick because they had a, uh, they had a respect last, throughout Eastern East Asia. You know, I, 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 I get, get it telling people that what Kung Fu really means. It doesn't mean, you know, martial arts. It means excellence in something. And it can be anything. It can be, I mean, that's why you have, uh, in, especially in Japan, but also in China, throughout East Asia, people are respected for their ability to arrange flowers in an exquisite way. A way that, like, most Westerners don't even appreciate but those who do you know who are do i would say an artistic sense it's, it's magnificent uh you know the bonsai tree and what have you well that attitude if you give it a uh, if you apply it to modern technology you quickly have some very competent engineers uh and and, and people capable of operating you know high-tech equipment um and that is something that the uh, the oil, uh, the Arab oil states basically had to pay a lot of cash to get. I mean, they also had a problem, uh, which we pointed out in the strategy page, is that Islam, uh, for various cultural and religious reasons, uh, does not respect technology and technology advances. Uh, change, I mean, basically Islam means submit, uh, submission, you know, keep things, and that's the whole business with, you know, Islamic uh, terrorism. These are the fundamentals to say, it says in the, in the, in the uh, you know, in the Quran, you know, you must be traditional. Uh, and, and that had a huge drawback. Uh, because of that, the uh, Muslim countries are late to getting to literacy because they couldn't agree on whether or not the, you know, typography uh, and, repr- and printing presses were haram, you know, forbidden or not. And it goes, and the list goes on and on and on. So the, the Arab states, it, by the way, it's not just Muslim states. Iran, on the other hand, they always had a fetish for technology, even after they became, you know, they were Islamicized, you know, in the eighth century, uh, but getting caught with their guard down when the when the Arabs came, you know, the uh, the uh, the duly uh, uh, Islamic Arabs armies came boiling out of the uh, the wastelands uh, in Arabia, but they adapted because, you know, yes, all right, we're gonna we're gonna you know become this Islam, you know, Sabbat religion, which you know basically suited Iran because they had always been, a, you know, a monarchy, but they never lost their, uh, how should I put it, fondness and respect for technical education. That's why it's pointed, it's pointed out that even though the, uh, the Islamic State in Iran um, uh, is very strict about lifestyle rules, they have as many engineering, female engineering students in college as they do men. 
and that's an enormous difference. They and they, pub, they print a lot more books probably than any the Arab states put together uh, because they, they basically translate and publish technical works and what have you, which is always considered somewhat un-Islamic in the Arab states. So if you have a, a very wealthy a country, a bunch of countries that suddenly became extremely wealthy, were frightened to death of their, their enemy, Iran. I mean, they, they were not about how they were basically anti-Israel, but they... Really important. I mean, it was another. It was another Semitic civil war because, let's face it, when you talk about anti-Semitic, you mean anti-people from Ar- that Arabia and then that part of the Middle East. <laughs> you know, Hebrew and Arab are, are related languages. But anyway, the the Arabs, at least the leaders, they never lost sight of the fact that our real enemy is the Iranians. Uh, and of course, now it's come to pass that they realize that hey, these Israelis. Or another bunch of Arabs, you know. I mean, they all right. So they their religious practices are considered a little weird, but we got a lot of those anyway. We got Druze and yada yada. Um, and suddenly they they're friends with with the Israelis. But the Arabs spent hundreds of billions of dollars on military services, and 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 we've reported on that. You go to the message boards. We've had a lot of those the expats, you know, on on there, and they tell stories about how. You know, they had the troubles they had training pilots and what have you, and 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 it had to be somebody from the from the uh, from the uh, from the royal house because they didn't trust you know non royal you know uh, Arabs to fly jets because there might be a revolution. That's what really comes down to. Um, but they made a concerted effort, and it's coming to fruition now. We've mentioned that with the war in uh, in Yemen, uh, they have created. And, you know, in, in basically 40 years, a generation of fighter pilots who can actually handle these modern jets. Uh, they get dinged because they don't they don't they have no compunctions about, you know, attacking civilians that the enemy is hiding among. But then that's another, you know, Middle Eastern thing. Uh, many parts of the world, you know, are not bothered by that. Um, and uh, the. Uh, that was particularly scary to the Iranians. The Iranians also couldn't help but notice that the Patriot uh, missile systems, anti-missile systems, which again still use a lot of uh, Western contractors, as it were, but are basically run by Arabs, have shot down like 99% of the 130 or 40 ballistic missiles, many of them Iranian-made, smuggled in, fired by the uh, the Yemeni Shia rebels at Saudi Arabia. That has to leave an impression. It actually has. That's one reason why you've got this big revolution, popular revolution, going on inside um, Iran. Because a lot of Iranians, you know, they can do the math. They said, "Hey, for years we believed these, 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 uh, you know, sandhill billies, uh, sand billies, whatever you want to call them, these hicks, these Bedouins, you know, would never, you know, uh, master modern weapons. And now, not only have they mastered them, but they can afford them, and we can't." So, hey, how about a change in management? And so that's another cycle of uh, Middle Eastern history that, you know, grinds on and on whether you wanted to or not. But military services has been a goldmine for, uh, you know, Western producers, especially the Americans, because if you want that stuff to really be effective, you got to train like the Dickens. This was something the Soviets never did until they came out with their SU-27, SU-30 series of aircraft. They said, "Whoops, we got to make these things are going to be a lot more expensive because they got to be made to last. We got to, we got to, the pilots got to fly many more hours, you know, per month or per year than they had in the past." 
Um, and so that changed everything. And that's one. Re- that's another reason Russia, Soviet Union, went bankrupt. <laughs> they they did the math. And they realized, you know, we can't go on like we used to. You know, whereas quant- quality, quantity has a quality of its own. It does up to a point. Uh, and basically, it's the the you know the the correlation of forces, as the Russians like to put it, had fundamentally changed and not in their favor. Sounds much better in Russian. Uh, the but in the meanwhile, meanwhile, the Western countries were cleaning up because we we ever since actually ever since the 20th century, uh, when we started turning out high tech weapons like warships, battleships, you know, when South South American countries started buying battleships, it cost them a lot to basically hire you know British or whatever mainly British technical personnel to train them to help with tech support. You know, uh, repairs and what have you. Some South American countries had more of a technical infrastructure than others. But that's a story I don't think, well, there's probably been scholarly articles published about it. But it's, again, it's, it's another example of how uh, high tech weapons have changed in many ways most people don't even realize. Uh, and so that, that, that technical. The military service, by the way, the point Austin was making about, you know, putting uh, high tech radar and fire control systems on, on, on an old, old Soviet, you know, jet fighter was something that uh, the Israelis basically invented. And everybody thought at first, oh, 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 clever Jews. But the Turks, before they turned Islamic, picked up on them. And they suddenly became, uh, the Turks became, a, uh, well, they learned it literally from the Israelis. Uh, because they, they, the Israelis went in and they basically upgraded, uh, you know, uh, old uh, American tanks that the Turks had with uh, fire, better fire control systems and what have you. Uh, and training techniques. And then the, the the Turks turned around. They said, "Hey, we have an easier time selling this to the Muslim countries because although we're a member of NATO, we're a Muslim country. I mean, the Turks are no dummies either. They're very clever. They take advantage of whatever they can grab, get their hands on. And they are currently uh, doing major business. Same thing as Austin pointed out with Ukraine. They were stuck with all these uh, <coughs> these uh, these post these uh, these Cold War Soviet weapons." But they realized that not only can you sell them as is, but a lot of Ukrainian engineers and like the Antonov Aviation Company, which was wholly in Ukraine, so the Ukrainians got the whole thing. uh, Their engineers during the Soviet period, especially towards the end, they were aware that the Russian style of running companies was counterproductive, I would put it. And they were eager to start using, you know, Western uh, technology, Western techniques and what have you. And uh, again, as Austin, as Austin points out, many of the West, uh, the, the satellite countries the Soviets controlled until 1990, uh, 1989, they had more of a Western looking, you know, viewpoint of how weapons should be used. And they, they basically turned out superior Russian weapons. For example, Poland uh, specialized in making certain types of Soviet helicopters. And their helicopters were basically considered, you know, quite a few steps above the quality of the Russian-made ones. Um, and and this was exploited, basically, uh, in the 1990s, by the, uh, especially by the Poles, um, uh, because there was a market for it. And, and there actually still is. Uh, you can upgrade a MiG-21 even, which is a real, you know, clunker as, as far as, a, you know, a combat aircraft goes. But again, as Austin pointed out, the jet trainers. Again, it's the L-1 something hired from the Czechs. But there's a whole, many countries, including uh, uh, South Korea's first jet combat aircraft, is basically a T-50 trainer, which comes 
you know, you can accessorize, and one of the options is fully optimized for combat, for mostly air-to-air and air-to-ground. Uh, so this was always waiting there to happen. And, you know, basically Russia was slow to pick up on it. The West was not. And that's one of those, how should I put it, major advantages that most people have no idea exists. But it is, and it's very real, and it accounts for a lot of the differences in outcomes in battles between countries who are enhanced, shall we say, have have basically, you know, old, uh, technically obsolete weapons, but have tweaked them, as it were. Uh, and of course, that's how the Israelis beat the beat the beat the Arabs. In fact, they they used to joke that, well, how could you beat these in the early wars? How could you beat the Arabs? They had modern weapons, um, and they said, well, it's not the weapons; it's the people operating, which is basically an old military adage. It's ancient history, but a lot of people lose sight of it. So, Austin, Dan, let me, let me pick up a, a, a couple of points on that. that. You know, I'm glad Jim returned to that. Uh, what some of the Eastern European and Central European Soviet satellite states were doing. I, here's an anecdote, but it's also telling. I, I can almost come up with a name of it. I can't. I can see it, but I can't articulate. The Czechs made a small nine-millimeter submachine gun during the Cold War that the Irish Republican Army and every other little guerrilla group around the world just, uh, I, dare I say it, would, would kill for because it was light, compact. It was it was kind of like a you know, the same same style of the, some of the smaller Uzis, and it was uh, extremely well made. You have to remember that Czechoslovakia, as Czechoslovakia up until 1938, was one of the most modern manufacturing. Uh, uh, had one of the most modern manufacturing complexes in the entire world. Skoda Works and around Prague and, and the like, which is one reason that Hitler wanted it. So the Czechs were uh, adept at, at many of these uh, small weapon systems and even some of the chassis that, uh, uh, that, that you could convert and use in, in manufacturing certain kind of light uh, uh, armored vehicles. Yeah, exactly. Well, the Germans did that, but the Czechs... I know, were, but they practically invented it by realizing the Czech tanks may have been, you know, exactly, cracked. It, it, but exactly. a few modifications and bingo. And there you go. And and the, what Jim was describing the Israelis and Turks were up to is, and I remember I used the word cascading. Well, as a cascade systems, they're upgrading. He said they were t- t- tweaking, they're upgrading them, uh, better sensor systems. And in the case, and look, one of the classic examples uh, is the Israeli Isherman. That's the Israeli Sherman. They use uh, the uh, M4A3E8, the American Easy 8 of World War II, and by the time they were finished upgrading it, it had a 105 on it and uh, a more, much more modern coincidence rangefinder and the like, and it was a Sherman. Slightly enhanced armor, but it was really a 105 millimeter anti-tank gun that was uh, still rather quick and uh, uh, efficient, and they used those right up until 1967. Uh, they had uh, okay. Then they had. Uh, the reason I bring it up is that's an example of of a of a truly dated system that. Uh, was a very serviceable weapon system if you had the highly trained uh, soldiers that uh, 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 that Israel had. Jim's described the weapon support, and it's not just weapon support, system support, because you, you need your your duchy. I don't think is uh, is concerned about. Uh, Deep operations where you have to get to start being concerned with uh, 
longer range uh, logistics. But one of the things that the Saudis and the Emiratis have uh, had to deal with in Yemen, even though the Yemen's right on uh, uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, border, is some of the sea operations and air operations, logistics, getting uh, fuel forward for uh, helicopters and the like. Yes, we've been able to provide them with the, I'm talking about the United States and some of the Western European uh, uh, allies they've got and contractors with help on this, but they've gotten a lot of experience doing it, just like Jim brought up about the Patriots. The Patriot, uh, those Patriot Pack 3s, the, the, the Saudi crews have had a lot of experience now in uh, anti-ballistic missile uh, interception. Now, just one other thing, uh, just to reinforce it, Jim said, you know, you suddenly got rich. You never said you had oil or gas or uranium or cobalt in, 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 in uh, Dan's Finwick land. But uh, the Uganda... Uh, example that I brought up is 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 a good one. I checked uh, when Jim was was talking. There's Sukhoi 30s that were uh, optimized for air air, air defense. That and I remember about right. 2011 is when uh, uh, Uganda made uh, made the order, and it was worth I, I lowballed it. It's about 750 million dollars. But subsequently, it's emerged that I, I said 40 50 million dollars unaccounted for. Well, I think we know what what what's gone on with it. But the, the Ugandans perceived they had a threat from uh, Sudan. They've got oil. They also had a deal going on with the Kenyans, and it's still going on. They, the Ugandans cooperate with the Kenyans on uh, uh, regional uh, def- uh, secu- uh, security uh, issues. And they, it's the Czech L-29 is the older version of that jet trainer that has been used by a number of sub-Saharan African countries as both a a reconnaissance aircraft but a light strike plane and now the Czechs have an L-39 which can, it's a trainer but with the tweaking as Jim described it, it's a very inexpensive and efficient and robust, in other words uh, it can it's not going to require as much maintenance as some of these other uh, other systems, but a very serviceable aircraft. So how does the Arms Bazaar work? In some ways it, it it works uh, as a subsidiary of the uh, of the defense industries, defense systems of the uh, of, of the larger uh, nation states that have the industrial base to uh, to produce it. But uh, it, it, again, depending on who you are and, and what you are, there are all kinds of things you can get. Just remember, if Dan, should you decide to go into money laundering, drugs, human trafficking, supporting terrorists, um, and you know, becoming a, a, a rogue state, suddenly uh, there are going to be a lot of intelligence agencies very interested in you, and you will find some of the shipments that you were relying upon to get your weapons and the like to be disappearing, and perhaps uh, uh, you know, you know, certain types of faulty weapons and ammunition have been introduced into your systems. I just bring that up to you because I know that happens. I don't want you to be surprised. <laughs> so, so uh, I, the, I threw that out there for Jim to laugh at because he knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, you know, just looking at things in general, Jim, you've written quite a few times. <sighs> I 
over the last we're almost 20 years old now yeah um about how the russian stuff russians have just been ripping off some of these uh countries with uh their arms deals in that they're selling them junk or they sell them stuff that is is partial or or things like that so are countries now leery of buying from russia well, yeah, that's something Russia realized uh, even before the Cold War ended, and they made a, a, an attempt to change it because they realized. I mean, for example, Russia's biggest customer during the uh, you know in the nineties and, and into the you know until about ten years ago was India and China. Now, India was a little slow on the uptake because they got licenses to build a lot of the aircraft and tanks and whatnot, Russian tanks, um, in uh, India. And although the Indians haven't got the, the, how should I put it, the engineering and manufacturing expertise that the Chinese developed, it's it's basically a matter of uh, relative, relative levels of corruption. India is much more corrupt. Um, they... Uh, the uh, they they realized even though they try to complain to the Russians that sometimes uh, the Russians were simply pointing out look the the parts are having problems with other ones you manufacture if you buy our parts uh, they're demonstra- they they basically uh, at least you know uh, function to spec but the it, it's true that the uh, the Russian defense industries. Uh, by and large, were very corrupt. That's one reason the uh, the Soviet Union collapsed. They basically couldn't even, you know, uh, build second-rate stuff, you know, to acceptable levels of quality. Uh, and the um, uh, they basically the corruption was so much and so bad in Russia that uh, they basically, you know, uh, hurt themselves. For example, by uh, by selling uh, uh, MiG-29s to one of the biggest arms export customers, Algeria. <laughs> it's been a major importer because they have oil um, uh, that were basically made out of secondhand parts. Now the Algerians are no dummies. That's one reason. One thing you get out of being colonized by the the French for over a hundred years. Uh, they had they could either call in French experts or they had a lot of their own engineers uh, who looked at this and said, "Hey, this is not the, the, the new stuff." A lot of the stuff is used and, and or, you know, and, and basically uh, substandard. And they basically uh, convinced the Russians, well, they didn't give them a, a choice, take it back. If you want to do any more business with us, you take all these mc 20 mines back and you send us new ones and we will check. You know we will. Trust but verify, the Russians have a saying. <laughs> That's very popular in Russia and was picked up by Ronald Reagan. Uh, and... Uh, this has been a problem that the Russians have not been able to address that Chinese have. Now, the Chinese have literally stolen a lot of the Russian modern tech. Uh, the only aircraft, modern aircraft they have that's competitive is the J-10, which they basically got legally technology from Israel, who basically got semi-legally F-16 technology from the United States. Uh, and the J-10 is, is the most, single most manufactured modern aircraft the Chinese have. You never hear about it because it, it's not the best. That The Russian aircraft, the SU-30s, the various SU-30s and the SU-27, is technically a better aircraft, again, depending on accessories and what have you. Um, but they cannot sell their J-11, which is what they call the, the SU-30, uh, or the J-15, which is what they call the SU-33, and so on and so forth, uh, because the Russians have told them, this became a big bone of contention over the last decade or so, uh, we will sue you. And they, they knew, the Chinese knew the Russians had a case, and they didn't, certainly didn't want their, their 
their their massive you know effective intellectual property to get that kind of you know attention. Um, so they don't export those aircraft, uh, and they tried the J-10, but the J-10, you know, just isn't that competitive. What killed the J-10 was all the secondhand F-16s available after the Cold War ended, and a lot of Western European countries, you know, reduced the size of their air forces. Uh, but the Chinese basically have higher manufacturing standards. They produce a higher quality weapon, be it ships or, you know, aircraft, you name it, even the tanks. That bothers the Russians a great deal. Uh, they don't like to talk about it, obviously, because their basic idea is the Chinese are a bunch of, you know, monkeys and yada yada, which is whistling past the graveyard and has been for centuries. But, but and they're technically allies with the Chinese. But, you know, long term, that's not going to last because the Chinese simply produce better stuff. That's why the West is more concerned about the Chinese, because the Russians aren't even in the race anymore. Right. E- even on a quantity basis, they're not there because their population was halved, and it's, it's yes. not like they don't have the people to even well, put in they, all they, this. They didn't lose the half that had that produced all the engineers. Right. Uh, most of the uh, Eastern, you know, Central Asia, what have you, uh, these were nations that were not. How should I put it? not even 100% literate, you know, when the Russians picked them up in the 18th and 19th centuries. And they never really, you know, got going. Uh, But the Russians kept most of the Slavic peoples uh, and and certain parts of the Caucasus, what have you. Right. Uh, And so they had the engineering skill, but the corruption basically uh, made economic opportunities for skilled people uh, less attractive than if they simply immigrated. Right. So a lot of them learned English and moved to Western Europe, United States, or even China at one point, uh, simply because they were they were being paid for what they were worth and not being ripped off by a bunch of you know uh, uh, corrupt bureaucrats, which is still a major problem with the Russians. Again, they don't like to talk about it because it's proved intractable. It's probably the secret weapon the West has against the Russians. Uh, they simply can't get their act together. Eventually they may. Uh, but so far, yeah, the Russians are defeating themselves. So, Austin, to wrap this all up, I just have one last question because I, like, I see some stuff coming out of Israel. But can I get some of this new Israeli tech? They've got. It looks like they've got some great UAVs and like that. What is going to prevent me from buying from them? All right, Dan, I'll, I'll give you this serious answer first, and then I'll give you the answer that uh, the, to, to reflect the uh, sewer and, and subterranean uh, the covert arms as a, as a going away present. What's, what's going to stop you from doing it? Again, it's going to be uh, your reputation as to, uh, to whom you, uh, if, if you support if if you're supporting uh, a criminal or, or terrorist groups, you're going to have a hard time making some sort of a deal uh, with the Israelis. If you have, uh, and this is me talking, all right, but they're just because they are security intense themselves. Secondly, what is your relationship with the United States and the, the major NATO uh, uh, NATO nations? If you're at odds with Washington, there are going to be certain restrictions uh, on some of the technology because it may be American technology and the Israelis can use it for their own defense, but it can't be exported. 
without uh, uh, without uh, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, approval. Uh, so there's there's a, a political component to it uh, that's predicated on a behavioral component. Now you told me you're an authoritarian uh, authoritarian state. It, it be, you'd be in a lot better shape if you told me, well, I'm a little uh, <clears throat> democracy that wants to uh, join NATO. Or, or what, or whatever, or wherever uh, you were located, but that isn't what you did, and uh, you—that would prevent you. Now, here's what I'm going to throw out. Now, what you need to do is is hire Jim and me and our consulting firm, <laughs> and uh, we have a uh, a company in Singapore that has, uh, among other things, it, 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 it ships uh, electronics products all over the world in container ships. Now, you don't have a port, but we have another company, I'm guessing you're somewhere in southeastern Europe, I'm you know, that has a, uh, has uh, facilities in, uh, let's, uh, let's see, uh, one of the Croatian, small Croatian uh, 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 ports uh, on the Adriatic. So, and we frequently ship from there. So, if you hire Jim and me, and there, we have, we actually have one of our own boats, one of our own ships that makes port calls all, all over the world uh, on this. We might be able to help you. It's going to cost you. Hmm. All right, I'm, I'm writing a, a. a, 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 a a, a spy novel, except that's that that's an alternative. Right. And it's not a new alternative. In other words, you you've hired uh, a couple of you know, uh, dare I say it, you know, on the edge operators who have uh, ac- access to this. The deal is, though, is that you know we may not be who you think we are. That's a risk that you, as the dictator of, of Grand Fenwick, have to take. That that's unfortunate. Uh, everybody knows I'm kidding, but uh, the deal is to get the joke out of it. Is we wanted Dan to hire Jim and me, so we get some money, and who who knows? Maybe we fleece you, Dan. You know, I mean, it's a possibility. That's what that you're you're in the dictator business. Get re- get ready for it. Mm-hmm. I'm All right. Well, it, it sounds like it, it's just this. I can basically get anything I want, but I make. I'm going to pay for it. Yeah, uh, and, and I may not actually get it. I may lose my money. And, and and the other thing is, is that because you're a bad guy, you're under the sword of Damocles to use uh, use that. Use that all all these bad guys that you're hiring on this could be working against you. Right. See, it's it's a it's a dirty it's a dirty world <laughs> on this. And even where it's half halfway clean in some of the things we've we've. Uh, 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 talked about. Look, uh, uh, I I think you. It was very controversial in Uganda, but I think Uganda saw a, a need for it, and it's it's legitimate. I wouldn't have purchased Sukhois if I were the Ugandan government. I'd have gone with uh, F-16s, uh, which is what you know, far far better aircraft. But they got. These high performance, uh, and as Jim says, you know the Sukhoi 30s uh, are they're, they're good, they're they're better uh, Russian uh, Russian made aircraft. But somewhere in there, out of the 750 million dollars on it, about 50 million, according to the Ugandan and Kenyan press, and and uh, and the like disappeared. Well, it didn't really disappear. It was crooked. Went into 
crooked pockets in Russia and, and, and who knows where else. And I, I'm saying that just, you know, I told you my, my sources on it. It's you can go read the what is it? The standard in uh, uh, newspaper in, in Nairobi and uh, some of the other ones. Uh, and they've got real reporters in those places. And the, 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 the autocrats running them, the, you know, Museveni got very angry at some of the reporting by some of the, uh, of the uh, Ugandan uh, uh, press uh, at the time, but it was also picked up by the BBC. And they still went and bought it. And again, this is one of the complicated things. I think Uganda needed those aircraft. I don't know that they needed that deal. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, right, well, we'll ra- wrap it up there. Uh, we've uh, spent our time and more. And uh, so we'll talk to you gentlemen next time. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye-bye.